1: This is Twin Cities Community. What happened was an amazing grassroots effort of people who have given us their volunteer time. She had
0: been to one of our food shelves
3: and couldn't believe in the need. But for kids that might not have an opportunity, that's really what this thing is about.
0: My main goal, to raise awareness and get people involved. Our
3: donations are slightly down, but we will complete the mission.
2: This is our life. This is incredible. We'll start the show right after this public service announcement. All natural
3: doesn't always mean all good. Mixing herbal products and prescription drugs can create dangerous side effects and reduce the effectiveness of your medication. Learn about the risk of mixing herbal products and prescription drugs from the Minnesota Academy of PAs at minnesotapa.org.
2: Thank you for joining me today on Twin Cities Community. I'm Lee Valsvik. I can't believe that Thursday is Thanksgiving, and it's the Walk to End Hunger at the Mall of America, the 11th annual on Thanksgiving morning a chance to give back before giving thanks. The family-friendly 5K walk and annual Thanksgiving tradition helped raise awareness of and financial support for 13 area hunger relief organizations this year. And in the studio with me from two of those organizations is Tara Kumar. She's a member service manager for Metro Meals on Wheels and Kathy Mays, executive director for Loaves and Fishes. Thank you both for being here. Are you ready for Thanksgiving morning?
1: We are ready for the walk and excited. Yeah. Really excited. And what
2: year? 11th year. It is our
1: 11th year. Walk to
2: end Hunger. And, and we talk about it every year on this show because uh, this is a tradition for a lot of people. And a lot of moms and grandmas are cooking and they kick everybody out of the house to go walk at the Mall of America. So um, uh, there's a lot of new things too this year. Let's talk about what is going to happen on Thursday morning. Starting at 7 o'clock at the mall.
1: Well, we're going to gather at 7 uh, in the Rotunda. There'll be a couple of speeches, and then the band will lead the walkers out. Um, You get to stop at a lot of different uh, locations and hear from all of the 13 uh, hunger relief organizations. Isn't that cool? It is very cool. And
2: both of you represent one of those 13. Um, The mall is decorated. There's great great window shopping (laughs) to get you ready for your holiday spending, too. But that day is... uh, Raising a lot of money for these thirty. How much money? Can you talk about the history of the walk to end hunger and how much money over the over the years has it brought in? Yes, I
4: believe it's been two and a half million dollars that they've raised um, over the time that the walk has been going. And I believe this year we've got thirteen hunger relief organizations, the most ever that we've had participating. So it's really a great way to raise money for a great cause. That is a great
2: cause. Now you represent. I am um, with Meals on Wheels. Meals on Wheels and of course Loaves and Fishes. We talked to you just not too long ago this year. That's right. Yeah, here uh, on uh, Twin Cities Community. But let's talk about both of your organizations. First of all, Terry, you're with Metro Meals on Wheels. We all know that, what it is. Has it changed throughout the years? Is it different than what it was a long time ago? Well, you know, there's always been
4: a great need um, to provide meals to those who can't prepare them for themselves. Um, Every year we serve uh, over a million meals to about um, 7,200 seniors and people living with disabilities in the Twin Cities. Um, you know, I think um, I th- the statistic this year is in Minnesota, one in 12 seniors are hungry. So there's a real need out there and we're doing all that we can to help meet that need. Tell me
2: about how Meals on Wheels works in the, in the Twin Cities. I think I was at a Meals on Wheels location one time for Care 11 when they were putting together the Thanksgiving meals and going, I couldn't believe the process of making all these meals, and this goes on every day.
4: Every day, uh, throughout a single year, we have 14,000 volunteers that help us get those meals from the kitchens into uh, people's homes. Are they
2: your own kitchens?
4: Uh, We do, Um, that's actually a new piece for Meals on Wheels. We've just recently, in the last year and a half, opened a kitchen that's specifically designed to meet the needs of Meals on Wheels recipients. So uh, meals are leaving that kitchen and going out into people's homes. Um, providing them the nutrition they need to Absolutely. stay at home.
2: Um, walking on Thursday at the Mall of America helps Meals on Wheels, but you mentioned volunteers, and I know you're always looking, what are the volunteer opportunities with Meals on Wheels? I imagine a driver is one of them.
4: <laughs> that is probably our biggest need. Yeah. Uh, every day we have um, so many routes going out throughout each neighborhood across the Twin Cities, so we rely on, um, almost entirely on volunteers to get those meals from the neighborhood sites into people's homes. So that's really our greatest need right now, if people can help out. um, We always encourage it as a family-friendly volunteer opportunity. So you know, parents or grandparents with their children or with their friends bring along someone because we really need that community support to get it done.
2: Maybe you can give us, think about one story of somebody or a couple of people, you don't have to use any names, um, that are taking advantage and um, it really makes a difference in their lives with Meals on Wheels. But before that, um, can you go back and, and tell us how Meals on Wheels started? Uh,
4: in the Twin Cities area, it started in the 70s. It really was, like I said, a grassroots community effort. It was uh, many people, um, mostly through their churches, recognizing a need for others in their <clears> congregations <throat> who couldn't get out and make their meals. So they were uh, making meals in, you know, the church, church basements and completely volunteer effort driving it. Um, and delivering those meals to um, other congregation members,
2: yeah, who especially are in need. seniors. And you were talking about the, the the problems with seniors and hunger. And a lot of these people, maybe they can get out, but maybe they don't have the money for food because they're spending it on medication. That's right. It's
4: uh, people are really having a hard time deciding how to use the limited budget yeah. that they have. So sometimes it it has to go to you know housing expenses or medicine uh, or whatnot. Or, you know, a lot of times seniors in particular they don't feel like they should. Um, be taking the support, that there's someone else in the community that might need it more. Uh, but um, you know, poor nutrition, it really makes an impact on people's health um, in a negative way. I think there's a statistic out there that um, seniors who are experiencing hunger, they are facing health problems that are associated normally with people 14 years older
2: than uh, their current age. So it really makes a difference. I, I always mention this on this show and people probably see it coming, but um, it, it also, loneliness is a sad thing too. Um, And to have somebody come to your house and say your name out loud, because a lot of these people don't hear their name out loud.
4: Right. Thanks, Lee, for mentioning that, you know, Meals on Wheels, it brings together not only the nutrition, but that social connection that people need um, to remain healthy and be doing well. So, yeah, it's the volunteers. Many times uh, the meal delivery volunteer is the only person, uh, you know, a senior might see in a day. So it's really important just to have that quick greeting and hello.
2: That'd be great volunteer opportunities. How would you volunteer uh, at Meals on Wheels?
4: Uh, It's really easy. Um, You can, if you'd like, go onto our website. It's um, www.meals-on-wheels.com and sign up to deliver in your community, either where you live or where you work. Yeah. Give us a call.
2: There's Six. jobs for you. Yeah. <laughs> Probably in the kitchen too, right? Then
4: yes, yeah. we do. In our um, kitchen of opportunities, we have uh, needs to help pack. Um, you know, some of the homemade desserts or the um, the breads or the rolls that might go along with the meals that are being made in the kitchen. Help okay. put those together.
2: This is No Hunger November, and every twenty five dollars raised means seventy five meals for Minnesotans in need. That's a that's that's awesome. And and loaves and fishes. I know you guys do. I, I, it's good to have you back, Kathy, to talk about Loaves and Fishes. You're one of the beneficiaries of the Walk to End Hunger. Fill us in. What is Loaves and
1: Fishes again? We've been around since 1982. Um, we are the largest open to the public dining site in dining sites in Minnesota. We actually have 27 locations. We open the doors and welcome people in for lunches and dinners. They're healthy, nutritious, and um, as Tara said. Um, senior, The senior population has really um, grown in our sector, and I think when I started five years ago, we were in the low teens as a percentage, and now we're hitting 40, 50 percent senior citizens. Um, they come together to get that really good meal, but then to also be with other people.
2: You have transportation services, too, don't you? No, do they we get don't. To, oh, they don't? Yeah. But
1: we have so many locations that we're located in neighborhoods gotcha. where the need is is very close. Yeah.
2: So how important is the walk to end hunger to loaves and fishes?
1: It's very important. It's uh, really outward facing. Um, people get to come up and ask questions about your organization. We have teams that come on and actually raise money for our own, own organizations. We've had teams that have walked with us, for us, for years and years and years and it's such a tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I look is, forward it, to it. I
2: mean, and, and here's the thing, if you don't have the tradition of walking on Thursday morning, start the tradition with your kids because now you you run into kids who have grown up and they have their own kids now and the the tradition moves on for so many families.
1: And I I think as I've watched it over the last, I've been uh, involved for the last 10 years, um, it really is a family friendly event there Are going to be people that are out there walking because they know that they're going to eat a whole bunch of turkey and mashed potatoes yeah. and gravy, <laughs> the exercise, um, and sleeping afterwards. But, um, you know, there's face painting and hat making and games and prizes, and um, it really Santa has Claus. become yes. Santa Claus. I hear Santa Claus will be there, Santa will be there yes. on yes. Thursday, so it's it's become an event, yeah. not just so much a walk, yeah.
4: Yeah, as a mom of some young kids, well, they're they're 10 and 8 now, but we've been doing this, I'd say, for seven years. And it's Great. it's really, just like Kathy said, it's a super family-friendly event. Even if you don't sign up ahead of time, you can register up until 9.30 that morning. So yeah. if you decide to come, get out there, you can um, go till 10 o'clock um, and it's really great. It's a great way to get uh, the kids energy out <laughs> in
2: exactly. the morning and have exactly. them ready
4: to sit down for Thanksgiving dinner. So, you know, if it's your kids, or your grandkids. Yeah, it really is a festive event. There's always arts and crafts and, and dance and all kinds of things. And like an expanded
2: said. fun zone too this year. There's going to be a little bit more than there has been in the past. So that's kind of fun. Um, I was asking you to put a face on some of the people that this money helps and and maybe you can each tell us about somebody that benefits or a story that always sticks in your mind about wheels, uh, meals on wheels and about um, loaves and fishes. You have one Tara?
4: Well, yeah, I could say um, meals on wheels, like I said, is a family friendly opportunity. So my kids have come with me many times to deliver on their days off uh, from school. And so, you know, one day uh, we delivered to a lovely couple, um, I believe uh, originally from Eastern Europe um, and we met them Bjorn and his wife and um, just had a lovely quick conversation. They were so excited to see, you know, they don't, they're not often seeing kids come to the door to deliver the meal. So they were super excited. i um, very thankful and appreciative. Um, and, you know, we continued on with our route, but come to find out later on, um, maybe a few weeks or a few months later, we found out that Bjorn actually is a cross country ski champion in his in his day. Um, and, you know, just he and his wife are having trouble to get getting their meals together. Um, but they, you know, love uh, living in their home. Um, so the Meals on Wheels just it's um, something you never know who you're going to
2: meet. You never know the stories.
4: Yeah. It's just a little help that people need to, to stay in their homes and communities. So that really, really makes a difference. Cool.
2: Yeah. How about loaves and fishes?
1: You see um, the same.
2: You must have some friends that come in all the time
1: we We have a lot of regulars, yeah. yes, um no, a great story was in a site in Crystal, and um I grabbed a cup of coffee and I sat down with a woman. I was really excited. We had just harvested um, a whole bunch of spinach, and the chef at that location was using the spinach. and so I sat down with a woman and and, and I usually just say, "You know, so glad you're here." Um, the conversation usually goes, "Why are you here?" And she looked at her plate and it was this lovely, homemade spaghetti and cantaloupe and the spinach salad. And she said, because I can't put this many colors on the plate by myself. Oh. And um, so she started eating the salad and she said, what is this? And I said, with tears in my eyes, that's spinach, we just picked it this morning. And she said, it tastes like velvet. Wow. And I said, yes, it does taste like velvet. So isn't that amazing? So you can make you can make a difference with really good healthy food, good company, um, and and also just some accountability that knowing people are still around, mm-hmm. um, and that if somebody's missing, then that somebody knows. Oh
2: yeah, then mm-hmm. they, yeah, absolutely. Right, There's a connection with everybody. Um, your organizations are two of the thirteen. Being, a, can you guys run through some of them and and if you know what these organizations do, maybe talk about them, like Family Pathways?
1: Sure. That's a social service agency, Family Pathways. um, The Food Group and Second Harvest Heartland are our two biggest food banks. Hunger Solutions helps us lobby and make certain that there's money for food in Minnesota. Um, ICA and Keystone Community Services, those are food shelves. House of Charity is um, a meal program as well. Um, We know Meals on Wheels. (laughs) Uh, Minnesota Food Share is an... um, that's an event that, that takes place for um, food shelves during the year. Neighbors is another social service, uh, as well as Open Door and Veep. Okay. And Second so, Harvest oh, Heartland, yeah. Yeah, Second Harvest and the food group are our biggest... Our food banks. Yeah. That's really where a lot of our food comes from.
2: Um, uh, This is an important time of year for all these organizations. And you can help out so many all on Thursday morning just by showing up at the Mall of America, right?
1: That's right. We'd love to see you.
2: And a big thumbs up for the Mosaic Company for being a
1: sponsor again this year. They have been one of our largest sponsors. Yeah, that's so cool. We're we're thankful for their support again this year.
2: That's important. So the Walk to End Hunger celebrating 11th anniversary this year at the Mall of America Thursday morning. That's Thanksgiving. Uh, seven to ten. Just think how the house will smell when you get home. It's gonna be wonderful <laughs> when you walk in the door. <laughs> and uh, it's seven to ten a.m. and everybody's invited, right?
4: That's right. Uh, yeah. You can register ahead of time at walkdenhunger.org. or if you just decide that morning, you can come in and register up until nine thirty and walk with us. That's cool.
2: And- so you can come with lucky Sluts, You can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: as an individual, or you can come as a team that's raising money. Oh, perfect. Anyway. Right. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah.
2: And five laps is approximately a 5K, I guess, around the mall.
4: Yep. Never. And- <laughs> like you were saying, with the window shopping and all the fun zones, it yeah. goes by really quickly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we were talking a lot about the uh, the, the seniors' kids, you know, especially during holiday break, because they're not at school getting their meals and stuff. It's really important.
1: Well, and it's, it's fantastic to focus on Thanksgiving and Christmas, But I will tell you, our busiest time of the year is June, July, and and August, and that's when kids are out of school. Absolutely. So um, think about us now, but don't forget about us then. Do a lot of
2: kids show up at Lowe's and Fishes? Oh, yes. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, it's family type
1: of thing, Mm -hmm. too. That's
2: cool. Um, Okay, so you guys, um, Thursday, get out to the Mall of America starting at 7 o'clock, right? Can you believe how many people show up on on an early morning like that? I mean, it's just crazy how many people show up at the Mall for it.
4: Yeah, it's great. It's, like I said, over and over again, it's super flexible. You know, if you want to get there early and walk and get done and then start working on cooking your Thanksgiving exactly. dinner, that's great. Or if you're, you know, a little slower to get together like my family is in the morning, <laughs> you can still get there at 8, 30, and 9. Oh, Have perfect. Plenty of time to uh, participate perfect. and walk.
2: Perfect.
1: Yeah, the actual walk from the rotunda starts at 745 with the brass band and okay, gotcha. and all of that. And, and um, that's really exciting. But get there early and register and
2: okay, kind of get...
1: The lay of the land. You can stop in and get a Starbucks coffee. They're they're open.
2: Perfect. Walk to dot org to participate or donate. You don't have to show up. You can help out, right?
4: That's right. Yeah, we'd love to have people walk, but if you can't, you can support the event by donating as well. Okay, you can be perfect. a silent
1: walker.
2: Yes, or a sleeping
1: walker. A sleeping
2: walker. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to thank Tara Kumar. She is a member service manager for Metro Meals on Wheels, and Kathy Mays is the executive director at Loaves and Fishes. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving, you guys, and have a great event on Thursday morning. Thanks, Lee.
3: A crystal ball can help you see the future. I see many things coming your way. I see a warm summer breeze, waves on a lake, and water skis. Are you thinking of buying a boat? I also see your Rock Concert T-Shirt collection being put into a bag and dropped off at a thrift store. And finally, I see you talking to your healthcare team, taking an easy test and hearing the good news that you are cancer-free. A colorectal cancer screening is kind of like a crystal ball for detecting cancer. And while it can't be used to tell you when the walleyes will be biting or when your wife will be reorganizing the closet, a colorectal cancer screening can tell you if you are at risk of developing cancer. When it's caught early, the five-year survival rate for colorectal cancer is near 90%. Don't make good health weight. Schedule a screening with your healthcare provider. Discover more about colorectal cancer and what you can do to protect yourself from the Minnesota Academy of PAs at MinnesotaPA.org.
2: We're back on Twin Cities Community, and guys, how's the mustache growing in for Movember? It's Men's Health Month, and my friends at the Power Trip Morning Show on KFAN, Chris Hockey, Corey Cove, and Meat Sauce. They talked to Dr. Joseph Zabel. He's a urologist at M Health Fairview, and I pick up on the conversation where Dr. Zabel is talking to the guys about some of the advancements in medicine in urology.
5: Certainly, in the urologic oncology world and urologic oncology meetings a lot of the excitement and advancements are on the advanced disease state where we're you know seeing good responses in patients with advanced and metastatic cancers and uh, and I think really that's the uh, certainly in the immediate future that's where I think we expect to see a lot of changes and uh, you know certainly we're also making a lot of progress and you know since it's we're, we're getting into things like that to yeah, talk mm-hmm. a little bit about prostate cancer uh, you know we're, we're more and more understanding the genetic and genomic basic basis of tumors and being able to better predict you know prostate cancer for example has a broad variety of aggressiveness grade diseases that a lot of low-grade prostate cancers that even if men have them they don't need to be treated because they may not cause issues but there's also a lot of men who have higher-grade prostate cancers that absolutely need to be you know diagnosed and treated and so trying to better predict who is who has been a challenge and over time we're getting uh, better and better from a genomic or a DNA level being able to predict and guide, uh, you know, who needs to be treated and and who can safely be watched.
0: You're good at this, man. Uh, Very. uh, Yeah, M Health Men's Health Month, and this is, again, Dr. Joseph Zabel of M Health and Fairview. Uh, Prostate cancer, okay. Um, What is the prostate, and how common is prostate cancer?
5: Yeah, so prostate cancer is uh, extremely common. In fact, there have been some studies that show that the majority of men, if they live into their 70s and 80s, will develop prostate cancer of some Mm. sort. And done autopsy studies that have found very high rates uh, in men who died for other causes. So not all of them are clinically significant, but it's extremely common. Um, and in terms of kind of what the prostate is, so the prostate is a gland that's involved in making semen or seminal fluid, and it sits kind of right at the outlet of the bladder. So a lot of men have benign prostate issues. You hear of, you know, guys who will have slow stream, difficulty emptying, mm-hmm. they get up at night to go to the bathroom, that sort of thing. Uh, And that's because the prostate sits right at the outlet of the bladder and causes these symptoms. Now, a lot of those symptoms are just from benign disease, don't relate to cancer itself. And so prostate cancer, one of the difficult things about finding it is that typically by the time it presents with symptoms, it's already pretty advanced Mm. and may or may not even be curable or treatable at that point. It's treatable, but maybe at that point, which is where PSA screening comes in. And we use PSA as a a blood test that's used to try to evaluate early prostate cancer uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, and try to guide <clears throat> uh, who needs to be biopsied, who needs to be worked up, with the goal of finding cancers while they're still at a curable or treatable state.
0: Hmm. Um, so is the is it the finger wiggle? Is that the test? Is that what we're talking about for prostate cancer? Well, so cancer?
5: That's, that's, the, that's the digital rectal exam. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so that's a part of the equation. So, you know, the screening for prostate cancer um, has, uh, you know, been somewhat in the news and somewhat in debate in terms of how to best do it and, and who should be screened or, or treated for prostate cancer. Uh, but yeah, so the, the two tests that are typically used uh, for appropriately selected men are a blood test called the PSA and the, the finger wiggle, as you put it, yeah, the, right, the, right. the digital rectal exam, yeah. which is done to, to evaluate for, among other things, but at least in the urology world, to examine for any kind of funny lumps or bumps or abnormal prostate gland. Hmm. And when should I start getting those? So so the, the American Urologic Association suggests the guys start talking to their doctors about this between the ages of 55 and, and 69, or 50, okay. 55 to 70 is really the target range for that. However, uh, prostate cancer and, and sp- specifically aggressive prostate cancer is more common in African-American men and more common in men whose fathers may have had prostate cancer. So if you have hmm. a first degree relative with prostate cancer, uh, <clears throat> it's recommended to start and talking to your doctor as early as age 45 or age 50.
0: Can you skip the rectal exam and just do that blood test you were talking
5: about? <laughs> no, for real. Well, so, so most prostate cancers are identified just with an elevated PSA or an elevated blood test. Um, you know it's a it's a common question we yeah, get sure. um, you know the the reality is the, the short answer is probably yeah. but the the rectal exam it's not as bad as people every you, now and you and honestly people...
0: haven't had that? yeah you're 47 yeah he just said 55 yeah but i thought it was supposed to be about 40 i mean i know he just yeah. said 55 but isn't uh, like my i'm 38 and my doctor the last 2 years has basically said do you want to start i'm like well no <laughs> like i'm not going to say yeah. yes until you tell me hey you're at the age where you should start right. doing it so he's he was telling me that, you know, you're getting closer.
5: It's a common question we get. But, yeah, you know, really until you hit about age 55 for prostate-specific reasons, right. it's okay. probably a little bit less critical. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we usually recommend it. It's a, it's a useful test. And they look for other things. You know, your your general practitioner, when they're doing this, often they'll be testing for small amounts of blood that might be in your stool that mm. can point to issues and that sort of thing. You know, certainly in the urinary tract, one of the other things as urologists we see a lot is, is hematuria or blood in the urine. Okay. Often can come with kidney stones, but one of the things that we often see, and, and I treat a lot of bladder cancer, is that we find a lot of people who have an isolated episode of some blood in the urine, they maybe kind of blow it off and don't do anything about it, and then it becomes a problem later. So one of those things, when people do see blood in the urine, if I'm doing going to do another you know, public service yeah, announcement for yeah. urology, a urology, urology service announcement, um, we, uh, we, you know, it, it is a good idea to see your doctor, you know, and some people will get that with urinary tract infections and things that aren't a big deal. But certainly if, if people just have isolated episodes of blood in the urine with no other symptoms or anything, that could be a sign that there's something going on and, and uh, it's a good idea to see a doctor and get it checked out.
0: If, if you had to ballpark it, uh, the average adult male, how much water a day should we be drinking? Because obviously you said dehydration's a an issue. Yeah. So What's, um, what's the average amount?
5: Yeah, water, amount of water a day is is a little bit tricky. So for people who, who are at risk for kidney stones, we usually recommend that they make between two and a half and, uh, you know, Three liters of urine per day. So we kind of think of it more in terms of how much urine you make. Jeez. Huh. Oh, okay. So, so really? especially if you're a stone former or you're predisposed to that, um, yeah. you know, should definitely be be making lots of urine. You, if you see if you see dark yellow, that's not good.
1: Okay. <laughs> that, okay. That'll predispose
5: you to to making stones. So the clearer your urine, the better. Um, how much how much you drink? Truthfully, that's that's really variable based on the individual and how much you're doing. But the more the better. Hmm.
0: And the clearer, the better. So You want it to basically look like you're peeing water. Yeah.
5: So the way stones form, I mean, you can kind of think of it almost like back to high school chemistry. It's basically a crystal starts to form, and then once you get that nidus of crystal, it can grow bigger and bigger over mm. time. And mm. so the, the the more dilute your urine is, meaning the the you know the electrolytes and whatnot, the more dilute they are in the urine, the less likely you are to make stones. Mm. Mm. You got Interesting. Others? No, I think okay, it, cool. I'm, I'm yeah, good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I answered I, most I, of mine. All
0: right. I have. Uh, let's move on to something that, for some reason. Uh, it seems more prevalent to me, but it's because of, you know, six degrees of separation or whatever. But I've known uh, quite a few people who've had to deal with uh, testicular cancer. Yeah. Is it more prevalent? Is it just because I'm older now? I'm 47 years old or what?
5: Well, so so testicular cancer, uh, you know, the one of the unique things about it is it tends to hit younger men. Mm. Uh, and so most cancers we think of happening to guys when they're or individuals, sure. 70s, et cetera. But testicular cancer, the most common age for it to present is actually between 20 and 40. So wow. guys in their 20s and 30s are, are the, the guys that are most likely to present with testis cancer. And that mm. just has to do with the nature of the disease. It grows out of the, uh, you know, seminiferous tubules, et cetera. And so that uh, and or it just grows out of the, the, the testis when men are in their most kind of fertile age, so to speak. So anyway, 20s, that, to, 30, 20s to 40s is when it happens. Yeah. And one of the issues we often see with testicular cancer, too, is that guys in that age group tend to like not going to the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And so we do see a lot of times where, you know, people maybe ignore something for longer than they should before they, before they present with it. So as part of the that's why one of the one of the things when we're when we think about testicular cancer is we, you know, encourage guys to, uh, you know, periodically do self-exams, self-checks. Uh, and, you know, if you feel anything normal, uh, the, the workup to check it out is pretty straightforward. It's usually mm. just an ultrasound and an exam with your doctor to get started and then obviously if there's anything worrisome we go from there.
0: So just check them out and literally if you feel any kind of weird lumps or anything like that.
5: Mm-hmm. Yep and there's I mean there's a lot of benign things in the scrotum oh, sure. so not every funny lump that guys feel is, is, a, is a testicular mass. So you mass. told you Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I, I knew it. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: But um, and again so go in have somebody check you out. how often should you check
5: yourself. Uh, as often as you'd like. Really? Oh, no, no, yeah. I just didn't <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing no, it four times daily. a day right now. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, you know, I think uh, in terms of how often there's not really any good data to suggest how often self exams okay. are beneficial and, and actually when people have done studies it's questionable how much it really helps diagnose things. Hmm. Uh, but you know, truthfully to, to kinda check things out once or twice a month when you're or you know, when you're in the shower is it's a it's a pretty easy thing to do and sure. And if people are noticing changes, it's a pretty easy thing to work up, and, and it's usually not too difficult for us to to differentiate worrisome from not worrisome with some pretty simple and expensive tests. Hey, you said you went yeah. to the University of Iowa, though, right? So I went to the University of – so I'm a, I'm a gopher originally. I, yeah. did, I did undergraduate here. I went to the University of Iowa for medical school, and that... then I came back here for my residency. Yeah. So I did, my, I did a lot of my training here at the U – uh and then and then in back now And i did a short stint at cleveland clinic as well so okay. I've been around but the university is my home base because that hospital bit that they do for the hawkeye games oh, is yeah. super cool yeah. it's very cool and it's yeah. A, yeah and it's it's a it's a very neat thing in the way that the campus is kind of all collected right right uh, together down there it's pretty cool it's a really good bit it was a great medical school i really enjoyed it
0: it is m health men's health month and this is dr joseph zabel of m health and fairview I, you came in here for a reason. Is there anything I, you want to make sure you communicate to our listeners? Because listen, our listeners are the people we're talking about. Who? who what do you want to say to them?
5: Yeah, you know, I think. What I, I think I alluded to a little bit earlier when when we when the question was asked about testicular cancer, and I think a lot of guys, I think kind of the recurring theme that I see in a lot of my patients is a lot of men are uh, hesitant to go to the doctor, don't like to go to the doctor, and I'll even admit. I'm not a very good patient myself mm-hmm. but I think I think the 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 common theme is that when when guys try to ignore things or be tough guys or you know and denial can be powerful too but I think my message would probably be don't be afraid to ask these questions and you know, your doctors and especially urologists, your urologist, a man's urologist, if they if they see one, there's there's nothing guys can say to us that we haven't heard before. Right. And so, you know, trying, you know, it's important to to be responsible for, for one's own health. And a lot of guys, I think, sometimes are hesitant to do that or are afraid of what they might find out if they ask difficult questions, things like that. So uh, I just would encourage guys to talk with their doctors about things like PSA and prostate cancer screening. And, uh, you know, if, if something seems amiss, don't be afraid to ask and seek some help. Uh,
0: I, I have to admit, I don't have a doctor. I, I don't have a, a family doctor that I see. I, 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 I'm that guy you're talking about. I'd rather, I'm just afraid of knowing, I think, you know, yeah. but uh, I'm 47. It's time I, I had a family practitioner
5: that saw just me. Well, in most things, you know, and, and most things, even in you know, the the cancers that I treat and things like that, most of the stuff, if we, if we find it at the earliest signs, we catch the stuff early, it's mm-hmm. treatable and it tends to not be that big of a deal. It's when, right. It's when we miss stuff until it's later in the process that we have more to do so
0: doctor you're the best ever yeah thank you Thank you very much man i appreciate it very much good to talk to you
2: he's dr joseph zabel urologist at m health fairview of course it's movember and as i said earlier how's your mustache growing in and thanks to the power trip morning show chris hockey cory cove and meat sauce for joining us on twin cities community Thank you for listening to Twin Cities Community. To discover more about our public affairs programming and to find the community calendar, go to our website and type in the keyword PSA.
5: 18- Plus.